This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. And thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 307, Prelude to the Fall of the Philippines. Of the many shrines in Japan, a particular one reads, Woe unto him who has not tasted defeat, which may beg the question, why would anyone want to lose? But the inscription isn't speaking of the here and now. It refers to the future possibly the coming of a more significant conflict. To never lose means not changing strategy or tactics, not upgrading the same, not even experimenting just to find a new way of fighting, as an adversary may have worked out a way around one's current defenses. Sadly, this was not a concern for the people of the Philippines, who had been under one foreign ruler or another, since the 3rd century. First, there was the Hindu-Malayan empires of Sumatra, Indochina, and Borneo. Then came the Chinese of the Ming dynasty in the 14th century. Then came the Muslims of Borneo, to be followed by the Japanese, who set up a trading post and controlled the area around it in northern Luzon, the largest island in the north. Then came Ferdinand Magellan in 1521 with his Spanish expedition. But it would be another 43 years before the Spanish set up a permanent settlement on the island of Cebu, just below the main island of Luzon. It would not be long before the Spanish extended their control to the north and, in fact, claimed many of the islands for themselves, which collided with Japan's claim to the archipelago. Not needing a long-distance war, the Spanish crown took the easy way out and simply paid tribute to the Japanese, but kept control of the islands for themselves. 
and during those payments, the Jesuit missionaries stayed hard at work, converting the locals and exploiting them. From this point on, until 1898, others would try to wrest from Spain her control. The Portuguese, the Dutch, but it would be the British who managed a two-year rule of the island before the Spanish returned in force. As things stood, the Philippine Islands had several cultures mixed together. Religion from the Middle East, Chinese trade, and of course, Christianity and Roman law. But then came a glimmer of hope for the Filipino people in the form of the Americans during the four-month-long Spanish-American War in 1898. The Treaty of Paris in December of that year, in which Spain received $20 million for her lost colony, made America's possession official. But already by then, the Filipinos had become aware that the powerful nation across the ocean had not fought to free the islanders. As there had already been a Philippine revolution underway, the struggle would continue against this latest oppressor. In fact, the fighting would go on until July of 1902, which caused the deaths of some 18,000 Filipino warriors and hundreds of thousands of civilians, mostly from famine and disease. Regardless, the United States was now an Asian power. But was the investment of treasure and blood worth it for the Americans? Basically, yes. The Philippines comprise almost 7,100 islands and islets, which covers about 115,000 square miles. And as the archipelago is about 500 miles off the Asiatic mainland, located relatively close to Japan, China, Burma, French Indochina, Thailand, Malaya, and the Netherlands Indies, to possess it was to possibly dominate the routes between these various countries, not to mention the island's natural resources of petroleum, iron ore, lead, chromite, copper, silver, nickel, and mercury, not to mention cheap labor. But once the war was over, the violent Filipino opposition died down, some members of the U.S. Congress were uncomfortable with possessing the islands, certainly in how they were obtained, by force. So when the tensions died down, Congress allowed the Filipinos an ever-increasing measure of self-rule, and in 1916, through the Jones Act, permitted a limited autonomy. Again, it was Congress, and not the White House, that kept moving for a more independent Philippines. In March of 1933, the Tidings-McDuffie Act, officially the Philippine Independence Act, was passed and promised to recognize Filipino independence after a 10-year transition period. As for the naval bases and fueling stations among the islands, that was left open to be decided by the Philippine government and the American president. The following year, the Filipinos adopted a liberal constitution and held elections, selecting Manuel L. Quezon as president. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, 
I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Germane to the coming battle, the Philippines had a tropical climate. The yearly temperature was between 78 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit, so the seasons, as it were, were simply referred to as dry or wet. Ironically, these seasons started at different times on the east and west coasts, depending on the monsoons. From June through September, when the monsoons blow from the southwest, the opposite beaches on the east are calm, perfect for a military landing. As for the northeast monsoons from October to April, that is the best time to land on the western beaches. Another thing for an invader to keep in mind is that the Philippine Islands are mostly mountainous. Indeed, some elevations go to 10,000 feet. As for the largest island, Luzon, only one-tenth of it is a large plain with an additional 5,000 square miles of river valley. Still, the relatively large area of open territory lends itself to military operations. Between this and its numerous beaches, the large island to the north is most convenient for any attackers, most inconvenient for the defenders. Now, before and up to 1935, when the Commonwealth government was established, the U.S. had been protecting the islands. During that time, a military force had been established, about 10,000 strong, roughly half were Filipino scouts, with locals as the enlisted, and as you can imagine, the Americans as the officers. Between this and American warships and airplanes, the islands were as secure as they ever had been. Clearly, these islands, looking to be independent one day, had to begin building their own defense force, but no one on the island had the experience, see the last 700 years. So President Manuel L. Quezon contacted his good friend, General Douglas MacArthur, current chief of staff of the U.S. Army, and asked him to become the island's military advisor. MacArthur, now aged 55 and at the pinnacle of his career, with no wars going on, said yes and got to work. Choosing Majors Dwight D. Eisenhower and James B. Ord as his main assistants, they drew up a plan for the Philippines to have a small regular army, a conscription system, a small air force, and a fleet of motor torpedo boats to counter any attempted landings. Alas, this defensive force was to be in place by 1946, when the islands became independent. Given the lack of the island's financial resources, General MacArthur's wider plan was to have enough of a defense in place, on land, at sea, and in the air, working together, to make any invasion so costly to the invader that it would not be attempted in the first place. However, the truth was, and President Quezon admitted as much, that the island's defenses would be 
inadequate against a foe with a powerful navy. The assumed safety net was the American Navy. Now, it was not legally obligated to defend the Philippines after 1946, but few Filipinos imagined the U.S. would stand by if the archipelago was attacked. The invasion and defeat of American and Filipino forces in December of 1941 often gets overlooked in history because of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and this despite so much. The loss of the Philippines was one of the largest defeats for America early in the war. Whereas Pearl was only attacked by air, the Philippines were overrun and occupied. Further, the Allied resistance there lasted six months, and after the struggle was over, the Americans had found that they had lost an army division. Still, it was this prolonged struggle in the Philippines that gave Americans back home a glimmer of hope, as possession after possession of the United States and its allies fell to the Japanese during the end of 1941 and the beginning of 1942. Yet Tokyo, its civilian and military leaders, were just as human as everyone else, and so found themselves reacting to events and making decisions on options still left open to them. In short, the never-ending war in China, the defeat of the Japanese Sixth Army at the hands of the Soviets during the undeclared battle on the border between Mongolia and Manchuria in 1939, which for the Russians is called the Battle of Golkin Gol, and for the Japanese the Nomohan Incident, combined with Western powers cutting off much-needed scrap iron, steel, and gasoline, forced the leaders of the Japanese Empire to seek growth and resources by invading to the south. The American government was aware of the hornet's nest it had stirred up, certainly by July of 1941, when Japan took control of the air and naval bases in southern Indochina. Obviously, they would serve as a jump-off point to actions in the area. To remedy their relative weakness, the Americans needed time, but realistically guessed that there wasn't much of that in great supply. Not unlike the former British Prime Minister Chamberlain stalling with his talks with Nazi Germany to allow his nation's military branches to strengthen themselves, Washington began a dialogue with Tokyo to give its military time to beef up its defenses in the Philippines, Hawaii, and along with its smaller possessions in the Pacific. With the idea of gaining time, Washington got to work. On July 22, 1941, FDR froze all Japanese assets in the U.S. and issued a military order for the armed forces of the Philippines to be incorporated within the American military. A few days later, General MacArthur was recalled to active duty, now aged 61, with the rank of Major General and given command of the U.S. Army forces in the Far East. And, it has to be said, most of this had been MacArthur's idea.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When the first Japanese air attack came at Luzon on December 8th, MacArthur knew he did not have enough troops to defend the island. Then again, he firmly believed the Japanese would not come until the early spring of 1942. No, at the moment he had, in total, 22,532 troops. About 7,300 of those were infantry, and about half of that was made up of Filipino scouts, who would fight bravely when the time came. The good news was that there was about another 120,000 Filipinos who were ready to be trained if the Americans could find the time, the equipment, the Philippine government, the money, and bring them on board. Also on the island of Luzon was an American Coastal Defense Artillery Unit, They were mainly focused around Manila, the capital, and Subic Bay on the northwest corner of the Bataan Peninsula. Doing the fighting would be the Philippine Division, based just outside of Manila. Two of the regiments, the 45th and 57th, consisted of Filipinos, while the 31st Regiment was the only all-American one. The infantry would have no real tank support, but the two squadrons of armored scout cars would see extensive fighting. There were also the two field artillery regiments made up of local troops. But like the other Allied forces in Asia, many of the locals were far from adequately trained, had no experience, and suffered from language barriers. Coming at MacArthur and his far-from-ready command was the Imperial Japanese 14th Army, led by Lieutenant General Homa Masaharu. In the Army since 1907, his latest combat experience had been in China in 1939. His plan was to first clear the skies of Major General Louis Brereton's air defense forces, then land his troops on Luzon and chase down and either destroy or forced to surrender the main American force. With that completed, it would be a matter of mopping up. Tokyo had given Homa 50 days to end his campaign, as some of these forces had to help with other invasions, like in Borneo. But he, Homa, thought it would all be over in just 45 days. Under him would be, again, the 14th Army, based in Formosa, about 200 miles to the north of Luzon, and within the 14th were the 16th and 48th Divisions, with 20,000 men each. Yet, as many islands needed subduing, the 65th Independent Mixed Brigade was thrown in as well. Yet, the tip of the spear would be the 5th Army Air Force Division, commanded by Lieutenant General Hideyosha Abata. Again, his task was to take out the American and obsolete Filipino air forces while on the ground, if possible, and then help harass the American Asiatic fleet. That naval force, led by Admiral Thomas C. Hart, had as his flagship the USS Houston, a heavy cruiser, 
the USS Marblehead, a light cruiser, would be at Borneo when the attack came. Still, with the Houston would be submarines, gunboats, and support ships. The defenders' eyes in the sky would be 24 PBY Catalinas and four seaplane tenders. As for the Japanese naval force, it would be the Imperial Japanese Navy's third fleet, under Vice Admiral Iba Takahashi, that would protect the convoy, make sure the infantry landed safely, and then take out the American fleet to then, once the islands were secure, protect the supply lines for the army. And here, too, the attackers would have the numbers on their side. Five heavy cruisers, five light cruisers, 29 destroyers, and two seaplane tenders, along with torpedo boats and minesweepers. There is, however, one last point to make before the antagonists cross swords. Years before, the American defensive plan was to execute a holding action, wait for reinforcements, and only then go on the offensive. But as 1941 drew closer, MacArthur altered this as his little force grew, so now it was to be a more active defense. His plan now was to stop the enemy at the beach. Yet right away, there was going to be two problems with this. First, at the Arcadia Conference, but even before then, it would be decided that Europe would be first. Hence, the Asian theater would not receive supplies in any serious amounts for some time. So how was MacArthur to hold out for years, waiting for the tide of war to turn in Europe? And second, Admiral Hart did not agree with this more active defense, not that the two men talked to each other hardly at all. So the Navy man would pursue his own idea of a defense, and this would cost the defenders greatly early on. Japan's taking of the Philippines was only part of a much larger operation. If the empire was going to push south, then the Americans at Pearl Harbor and in the Philippines, not to mention the British naval force at Singapore, had to be removed from the map. And as we have seen, other targets were selected for either a destructive attack or subjugation, like Hong Kong, Guam, Wake Island, and others. Only then could a drive further south be possible. Prime Minister Hideki Tojo had gotten his way again, as this man was mostly responsible for advocating for war against the West. Only time would tell if he had been right. Time and the might of Japan's imperial forces. Even before the first air raid over Pearl Harbor had retreated back to the north, C&C Pacific Admiral Husband Kimmel sent a message to Asiatic Fleet HQ. Of course, it was 2.30 a.m. on December 8th there, so Admiral Thomas Hart, like most senior officers, was asleep. In a matter of minutes, though, Hart was awakened and brought up to speed, which is more than can be said for MacArthur or any other army officer, for that matter. It would take them another 30 minutes before army operators were made aware of the situation. The point is, both Hart and MacArthur had ample warnings to get their defenses up to speed, which is exactly what worried the invasion leaders. As it was still night over the Philippines and Formosa 
from where the attack would come, no planes could be launched to go after the American fighters and bombers. And the Japanese knew exactly where the American and Filipino air bases were, having conducted reconnaissance flights up until December 5th. But staying with the Americans for a moment, MacArthur had, as things turned out, hours to ready himself. At the very least, the tens of thousands of Filipino reservists could have been called up. Further, units already active could have been sent to their defensive points along the beaches of Luzon. As for Admiral Hart, he had wanted to move his fleet south when hostilities started as to not have it destroyed early on by the overwhelming enemy naval might. Word could have been given straight away, but also to have his submarines move north to hopefully intercept the coming convoy. Which left General Lewis Brereton, commander of the Far East Air Force, to have his bomber squadron commanders move, or at least ready, their planes. All of this could have happened during this first night, but not all of these actions were taken. Again, the Japanese knew they had to take out the American fighters and bombers stationed in the Philippines, as it was the largest concentration of planes outside the continental U.S. Even worse, they assumed, as Pearl would have been attacked hours earlier, the Japanese would be flying into their own hornet's nest. Thus the goal was to take out the 34 B-17 bombers, but more important at least at first, was to remove the 91 Curtis P-40 Warhawk fighters. Once they were gone, the Japanese Air Force could run wild all over the islands. When the planes of the Japanese 5th Army Air Force Division came in on December 8th, they knew they had to make for the fighter base at Iba on the west coast, almost due west of Clark Field, itself about 50 miles northwest of Manila. They would also send squadrons over Nicholsfield, a few miles southeast of Manila, Del Carmen, just below Clarkfield, and Clarkfield itself. The only airfield out of range of the fighters coming in from Formosa was Del Monte Field, just atop the large southern island, Mindanao. Further weakening MacArthur's defensive posture, besides the enemy knowing where his fighters and bombers were based, was that... Of his three recently arrived air radar warning units, only one was operational at Iba on the west coast. No, the main American-Filipino defense would have to come from the P-40 fighters, although MacArthur had recently proclaimed, I am going to fight a glorious land war. Yet the reality was, it was up to the fighters to extend an umbrella over the various airfields, over Manila, and over the Asiatic fleet. As they went, so went the war. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So um, I just wanted to take a moment and thank a couple of people um, who have donated or become members. Either way, you obviously you are helping out the podcast. And before I do that real quick, um, the good news is I do have a surprise for you listeners. Um, can't give out the details yet. You'll probably see manifestations of it in early January. Uh, so just hold on. I think it's something you're going to like. So uh, I'll get into that later. But just wanted to let you know I've got something coming your way. So 
As far as those who have made donations, um, Richard F., thank you very much, Ira F., Carl B., Ben F., who is in McKay, Queensland, Australia, and you put a note in there that I, your children are listening as well. I don't know their ages, but I shall endeavor to keep it clean, okay? Gene uh, S., Mark S., John D., Vicki M., Remy B., and as far as the latest members, and again, if I've missed someone, I'll go through there again and check and, and uh, call your name out as well, because I do want to sincerely thank everyone. So again, the newest members are Jeff S. from Coal Valley, Illinois, John T. from Wichita Falls, Texas, um, Giles U. from Bonneville, Alberta, Canada, Steve W., Kyle M. from Indian Atlantic, Florida, Kyle, I hope you're not messing with me with Indie Atlantic. I have to go look that up now. John A. from Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, John, that's where I'm from. Well, from South Carolina, so how's it going? Um, the rest of you, again, I will catch up with later. And again, I'll have a surprise for you soon that I think you will like. But until then, obviously, be safe. Have a happy holiday. And when I say be safe, stay away from everybody, and you'll be fine. And one day we can go back to normal. But for now, prudence is the order of the day. Take care, everyone. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big